right, guys. Welcome to Sporacity, our first live video one. Uh, we've got a little bit of stuff because of COVID, but we're doing great. Yeah. Um, so I'm our host, Zayden Phillips. Hi, I'm Isaac. I'm new. I'm Wesley. I'm Talon. I'm Calvin. All right. So we're going <laughs> to get this rolling today. So today we're not sticking with our thing of doing random because there's a massive uproar in the country right now. So we're going to mm -hmm. dive right into uh, the George Floyd situation, what happened around that. Yeah. yeah so uh, I would be very impressed if anyone hasn't heard the name George Floyd in the last few weeks. Uh, it's um, been everywhere. So yeah. I, think, I think the goal would be to kind of narrow down a handful of topics to talk about. Um, I have a few that I want to talk about, but um, we could we could start with the autonomous zone since you were asking about that, Calvin. Or we can start maybe kind of from the beginning and go chronologically. I'm I'm down for whatever. Start with the autonomous zone. Pitch this to me. What what are we talking about here? Okay, so um, Seattle, right? Big city in Washington, mm -hmm. land of the free, home of the brave. Uh, not uh, yeah, not anymore. Um, so uh, an area of, I think, six city blocks has been taken over by protesters and um, demonstrators. Um, so they, they basically are occupying this six square block area. They fenced it off um, and they have armed guards um, patrolling around it. So um, citizens with firearms who are, who are um, watching who's going in and out. Um, there have been cases where people have tried to get into the zone to like go home and get their things and they haven't been allowed in unless they have a special ID. Um, so a bunch of these protesters basically are holding this section of the city hostage and a list of demands came out on Wednesday from what they wanted for that. Um, it was a list of about 30 demands and we can go through them, but um, probably some of the most notable among them were they called for the complete abolition of the Seattle the Seattle Police Department and the justice system in yeah. Seattle, uh, complete abolishing of it, um, not, not just reducing funding or anything like that, just getting rid of it, um, in favor for um, basically delegating people to do that job, just your average citizen. Mm -hmm. um, Anarchists. Mm, excuse me. <laughs> Another notable request is uh, the resegregation of hospitals in Seattle. So they are basically saying, hey, we want hospitals to be required to hire more black staff to take care of exclusively black patients. Um, and, uh, I can pull up a list here, but that's kind of the gist of it. Okay. And, um, I'm, I'm reading, I'm just like scanning a Washington post article right now about it and I'm starting to get a feel for it. Yeah. It's, it's also been called, uh, what is it? Chaz, I think, or something like Chaz that. Chaz is what I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, what does it stand for? Um, before something on Capitol Hill autonomous zone. Stands for. Okay. Citizen. So um, another few of the notable demands are a retrial of every black um, individual who is in currently in prison, um, barring none. So every single one gets that um, an investigation into every uh, alleged claim against police brutality, not by the city government, not by the state government, but by the federal government. Okay. A reopening of every police brutality case that has ever occurred in the state of Washington. Um, uh, no more. Or one of them is abolishing the school to uh, prison pipeline, which I'm not really sure what that means. Um, okay, I'm familiar with the school to prison pipeline. I can talk to that. Yeah, so I, I know what the prison pipeline is, but I'm not really sure how you abolish something like that because I yeah, I I have some I have some thoughts and insights that I can share. Okay, yeah, go for it. Um, but like let's let's talk generally. This seems like an interesting 
microcosm of sort of like what's going on nationally. So um, first, before we get started, there's a handful of things that I feel are very important for us to like understand specifically about protesters and demonstrators. Um, primarily, there is a difference between a protester and a rioter, right? right? Like protesters are generally peaceful, but there's some overlap between the two as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, certainly because a lot of the people who have been like perpetrating more violent acts of protest, who have been like vandalizing buildings and things like that, um, some of them have the same stated demands as the protesters, um, that being a generalized term. And some of them, some people are just taking advantage of the chaos to like loot and pillage. And of course, that's not excusable. Um, and I think we're all on the same page about that. Yeah. And the autonomous zone specifically, this seems like a very large well-organized sort of extreme example of everything that's going on but i don't know i feel it's, i feel it's very important to like make these distinctions and also to recognize fundamentally that although we can look at even the more violent protests and recognize like violence is not the answer here um most people who resort to violent protests don't do so because they love violence or because they hate law enforcement. They do it because they feel like they're not being heard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like it's, it's a quote that we talked about when we met a, at another time, you know, it was JFK when he said that those who make peaceful protest impossible make violent uprising inevitable. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing reflected, especially in more extreme seeming examples like the autonomous zone that I'm just learning about. Um, regarding specifically the school to prison pipeline. So you're familiar, I'm sure with the, the gist of the idea, but basically it's the idea that the, the public education system in the United States is set up in a fashion that disproportionately exacts disciplinary action, like extreme disciplinary action on black people and other people of color. And the argument that is made by black activists, which is supported by decades of evidence dating back to the 1980s, is that this level of general intolerance leads to a system that eventually results in things like mass incarceration and in longer incarceration periods for nonviolent offenders and things that just overarchingly disproportionately affect communities of color in a way that is nearly impossible to escape because of the way that the system is designed. Um, and there's a, there's a very good book that I'm reading right now in an attempt to understand a little bit more of this. It's called uh, So You Want to Talk About Race, and it's by Ijoma Oluo. I've heard of it, yeah. Um, and there's a specific chapter that talks about the school-to-prison pipeline. And um, it, it's, very, it's, it's a very all-pervasive phenomenon that has effects that range from, like, small children of color being accused of violence when they're just playing, but because of how there's the color of their skin is perceived like especially white people have a tendency to look at what they do as violence like as aggression as opposed to roughhousing so it's everything from that to mass incarceration affecting um parenting in the united states for people of color and how that simultaneously adversely impacts everything from when kids can go to school and how much food security they have um so that's like a super, super crash course in the school to prison pipeline. And one of the things that's specifically mentioned as a way to combat that is um, 
the book phrases it much better than I could. And I recommend reading it. It's very interesting. But um, a, a structural redesign of the public education system. And structural redesigning sort of seems to be the vibe from a lot of protester demands, as, as you were mentioning um, from a list of the other demands released by the Autonomous Zone specifically, it sounds like. And so one thing that is kind of interesting to me is recently we've seen um, there are the, the two main parties in government have control over certain, I don't want to say control, but they have a lot of influence over certain industries or areas, right? So mm -hmm. for example, um, the right has a lot of like business influence and the left has a lot of like media influence as far as like Hollywood goes, right? Mm -hmm. And one of those that a lot of people attribute to the left having a lot of influence over is that of academia. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting to me and i'm not i'm not gonna be too abrasive here because i don't think that's i'm not trying to project that but it's interesting to me that a lot of these people who um like uh, people of color disproportionately vote democrat or vote more to left candidates um and, and cases like that so it's interesting to me that they're they're voting for officials and whatnot who have a kind of influence over them the academia that kind of supposedly breeds this this school to prison pipeline um and i'm not sure really um like how how like much influence they really have over it but i know at least at a at a collegiate level there's a lot of left influence in a lot of the ideologies of of students um which it's everyone's right to have their own ideology right but it's just interesting to me to see that um they're asking for this change by the party who already has the most influence over it yeah, here's what I would contend specifically in that regard. First, um, while I certainly can't dispute that, like, in my personal experience, there has been, like, like having, having been to college and having interacted with a lot of college students, I've met a lot of people who are very left-leaning. I've had some professors who have been pretty solidly left-leaning, but the opposite has also been true. Right. And I think, yeah. like, it's, candidly, I think it's wrong to specifically assert that academia leans particularly left or right, but let's, let's say like for the sake of argument that it does lean left. Here's the problem with that. The school to prison pipeline specifically prevents people of color from being involved in positions where they are able to thwart academic and institutionalized bias against them. So I think it's sort of talking at cross purposes to imply that like people of color are electing or choosing the leader's that are adversely affecting them because people of color are not the ones who have disproportionate influence in terms of anything in media or in business or in academia, right? Like that is disproportionately white people because white people are historically much more franchised, particularly white males. Um, and so are statistically more likely to vote and to participate in everything from county elections to national elections, sheerly by grace of the fact that, again, as white dudes, we have always been able to do that without fear of violence or aggression. Um, and that's like the, the tricky part about talking about something like that is that it's so deep rooted that while at the surface level, it's easy to look at this and go like, well, why aren't the Democrats doing anything about this? And it's because the Democrats are just as complicit in this as the Republicans are. This is, I mean, I don't want to say it's not a political issue because it is clearly, right. but like institutionalized bias spares no one, even people who claim to be anti-racist, even people who are actively anti-racist are still complicit unless actively fighting against it 
in a system of institutionalized bias. And that includes things like academia and the school to prison pipeline. I would disagree um, with a little bit of what you said is that like, um, like the school to prison pipeline, sort of the ideology is that like, it's like institutional bias kind of prevents people of color from rising up. And that's actually very not true. Um, uh, upward mobility in the United States is bigger than in any other country for people of all socioeconomic status for one. And then second of all, um, you make this claim about like, sort of like white males are sort of like, we're more likely to vote and stuff. Um, but we also don't have the largest amount of power actually. Um, like whites are, I believe the third high, uh, lo highest or lowest, I think it's somewhere in the middle ish of like earning money. Um, so when people say like people of color are being oppressed by the system, it's actually, they're mainly referring to um, blacks and Hispanics. Those are two lower um, like historically and now, um, socioeconomic statuses. Um, blacks have the lowest, and I believe Hispanics are I think Hispanics the are the lowest and blacks. Hispanics have yeah. the lowest. No, like, I'm, I'm yeah. fairly sure that blacks are lower than Hispanics um, on how median household income, mm -hmm. I believe, or average household income, one of the two. Um, um, but whites are actually not the highest. Like Asians and Indians, as in like um, in people from India, not Native Americans, mm -hmm. are actually the two highest earning um, races. Like Asians have almost double like the white household income like yeah. per median and Indians are a little bit below that. Um, so there, so um, my problem with you um, sort of like the idea of this pipeline to prison is that we oppress people of color is that it's not against everyone who isn't white. It's only selectively apparently against these two groups. Right. Well, but that, I mean, you say that as though that's a positive thing. Um, and first of all, the school to prison pipeline does exist for people who are not black. I mean, statistically, you are right. It's less likely to occur. And this is in the same book that I'm reading. So you want to talk about race. There's a chapter that talks about the model minority myth, which specifically addresses Asian Americans um, and like their, how, they, how they fall into this scheme. But like Hispanics also experience the school to prison pipeline on an enormous scale. Indigenous people and Native Americans also experience the school to prison pipeline on an enorm enormous scale. Um, and I, I'm appreciative, like I, I hear what you're saying about like Asian and Indian Americans. Um, and I'm not a thousand percent sure on the statistics. I wanna say just like based on perception, it sounds like I, I, my perception is that yeah, that white people and Asian American people fall closer to each other on the socioeconomic spectrum. But A, I don't conclusively know that. And I, it's, I'm probably wrong about that. And more to the point is that like the level of systemic oppression still exists. And that does apply to people of all colors that are not white, including Asian Americans, right? So like specifically the model minority myth is a thing that's been propagated since social studies, um, like faculty, I wanna say Columbia, not a thousand percent sure where, um, but social scientists since about the 1960s have propagated this idea that Asian American communities are somehow the model minority, which is to say that um, like there's the stereotype of Asian Americans being better at STEM programs, of them being higher educated, of them making more money on average than white people. Um, and so a lot of white people will point to Asian American communities as though it's a monolith, which it's, it's not. They'll point to those communities and they'll say, well, why can't you, like as a black community or as a Hispanic community or as an indigenous community, why can't you be more like the Asian American community? 
which a fosters this nasty sense of like division between various communities of color, which well, is also fundamentally it. unhealthy mm-hmm. and B separates from the fact that in the civil rights act that established, um, like that, that tore down decades of oppression against specifically Asian American migrants to the United States in the same civil rights act in the 1960s, um, that like Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson signed off on, there were stipulations subsequently put into place in the 1970s and 1980s that had not education requirements, but like really high expectations as far as education and as far as socioeconomic status for migrants from places like China or Japan or Thailand or India. And so thusly disproportionately a large number of the people who have migrated from countries like that to the United States since then have been people of higher socioeconomic status, which is why in many cases, though certainly not all, it appears that they are in a stronger position than other communities of color is because the system was designed to make it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm. And yeah, I'm not, I have not heard about that. I'd have to look more into that. But um, as you see that like, um, this doesn't only affect like school and income as well. Um, Asians are like, as much as blacks are disproportionately large amount of people incarcerated, Asians and Indians are a disproportionately small amount. Um, and I think that relates back to um, socioeconomic status that, you know, these are higher income earning families if, that are coming into the U.S., but they also um, commit less crimes. Because, like, uh, this may be a little bit, like, blunt, but the reason that there are disproportionate, like, the main reason that there are Blacks are disproportionately largely represented in prison is because they also commit disproportionately large amounts of the crimes. Um so I have, I'm going to interject, and I've heard okay. that before, and I think there's a certain amount of validity to that. But I've been thinking recently, as that has come up more and more, is that I wonder if it's as much as they commit crimes, as much as they're charged a little bit heavier for crimes mm-hmm. that they do commit. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. there are more black people in prison because there's a little bit more prejudice to get them there. Not necessarily, like, putting aside the fact that they commit more crime, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. the amount of supposed prejudice that could be there and again i'm not 100 percent sure but i've been thinking this over is that you know maybe white people you know are they are less likely to go to prison for a particular crime than a black person so the level of crime may be different Mm -hmm. but um the rate at which they're incarcerated could be due to some bias in the justice Mm -hmm. system as well Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure that those correlate to each other super Mm -hmm. well well also yeah but when you look at crime rates too is that like black men commit even though they're uh, like blacks are fourteen percent of the population, black men commit fifty percent of the murders in the U.S. Right. So then my and question so, would be: Is that do they actually commit fifty percent of those murders, or are they just charged for fifty percent of those murders? They commit fifty percent of those murders. Obviously, well, um, I think I think Talon's point stands here, though, is that you know one of the insidious things about institutionalized racism is that it exists specific like the first police in the United States, like the first police units were designed to capture fugitive slaves, right? Like it was modeled after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1857. This was, this was the explicit goal of the first police systems in the United States. And as the 1800s progressed, that didn't change really, right? Because then like indentured servitude of black people became a thing. And then large amounts of migrants who were people of color started coming. And the police's job 
to as in like as enforcers of the law as that role like increasingly became theirs the trouble is those laws were racist and so then as that has unfolded over time you know and still inhabiting places where like interracial marriage was illegal in georgia until the year 2000 yeah. where racist laws are still on the books um people of color are disproportionately more likely to be stopped and arrested for alleged crimes. They are more likely to get very long prison sentences as opposed to white people. And in like in combination with systems like the school to prison pipeline that are specifically and intentionally designed to keep people of color in positions of subjugation, like it, it, it comes back to this thing that I hear a lot and see a lot on social media, which is about black on black crime. Right. And like, why aren't we talking about black on black crime? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Like, I, I can't dispute the point that black people like black on black crime, like black people do commit more crimes and like more murders and those things on other people of color than white people do these days. But that's not like we have to stop and critically ask ourselves why that is. And it's not because black people somehow have like a penchant towards murder and crime. I have a thought on this when you're finished too. I, I do too. It's because these systems are specifically designed to turn communities of color against each other, designed to keep communities of color subjugated and designed, literally entirely designed to perpetuate these crimes in an attempt to keep black people and other people of color under the subjugation of white people. And it has been that way since the beginning of America. And while we have modulated that and made steps towards, you know, progressing forward, knock on wood, that is still very much how it exists. Everything from the CIA to local police departments exist in a state of institutionalized racism because that is how they were designed. So I have kind of two thoughts is that, um, one is I'm not sure, um, and this is coming from a total place of ignorance, not a place of aggression towards you at all, but I'm not sure um, in what ways those have been in institutionalized mm -hmm. to to keep black people under the subjugation of white people. Um, I'm definitely open to the idea. I'm just not sure like what specific instances okay. or um, institutions, yeah. how they actually do that, like how that actually looks. And then the second thought that I had was um, I think a lot of it has to do with the um, the de-evolution of families um, mm -hmm. and um, yeah it can get really complicated really fast um, but one of my fund fundamental beliefs is you know if if we can prop up the family unit is something very very powerful and that we can get parents to stay together and not have children outside of wedlock and to make sure that they can provide for their kids and help them through education all these all of these things to raise stronger and stronger generations is that generationally as we progress um, crime will go down, we'll have more capable people in places of leadership and things like that. So I think one of the fundamental things is um, families are weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker, especially in African-American communities. And part of that may be due to this institutionalization to kind of pit them against each other. But I, I guess my question is, yeah. to you that I'm not sure how that happens. Yeah, so I know Zayden has a point. So I'll just like really briefly address that. But like, um, Okay, let's take the example of like family units, right? And like, let's, let's accept the premise uh, for the sake of argument that like, if we could have entirely cohesive family units, that that would like bring down crime levels and all of that. So if we accept that, um, this comes back to a thing that I said just a second ago, which is that interracial marriage was illegal in many states in the United States until literally the advent of the 21st century. 
right? Like my parents could not have gotten married in the state of Georgia until the year 2000. And that is born out of slavery. And it is born out of slavery because black people and like other people of color um, who were literally subjugated to white people in the United States from the time of their arrival on the American continent were forbidden from getting married, except in very rare instances where they were permitted to by their slave masters. And they were forbidden to have children, or if they had children, those children were immediately the property of slave owners and thusly could be sold and sold to completely different people. Families were torn apart by design because it kept their units weaker, because it broke up communities and because it dehumanized them. So right. that's how it existed like in slave times. The trouble with that is that subsequent to the abolition of slavery, racism did not obviously just disappear. Mm -hmm. And then what happened, especially in the South during the Reconstruction era, is that laws were put in place, you know, like all of the Jim Crow laws and all of the subsequent like segregation laws that were also designed to keep both families and communities of color driven apart, enforced by the police. And that include things like bans on interracial marriage, um, sometimes like horrible policies about credit loaning and like who could buy houses and obviously things like where you could work and like who you could associate with like all of that was still very much in place and because of how deeply ingrained that was coming into the abolition of slavery it was nearly impossible to uproot that and so then as the 20th century unfolded and like various reform movements started coming through and looking to fight against that everything from like feminist reform movements to civil rights and African-American reform movements, um, the family and the community units were specifically targeted by the broader white oppressive community as a means of preventing individuals and communities of color from coming together. And that didn't change as evidenced by the fact that interracial marriage was still illegal until very recently. So I'm like, if we accept thusly the premise that if the family unit were stronger, that we would have less crime, then we have to own up to the fact that as white people, that is our fault. We designed the system so that the family units of people of color in the United States would be weaker. And if that causes more crime, the onus is not on the people who were subsequently ripped apart from their families and faced by literally centuries of laws designed to do that. It is the people who designed those laws who are at fault. And, okay, so I'd like to speak just a little bit to that. Is that, um, first of all, is that like, um, like my race doesn't define me. Um, like I was not the one that went and put those into place. Um, and neither were all white people. You see things like, um, with like the Quakers that moved to um, uh, like um, America is that like they fought against slavery very hard. Um, the American constitution and legal system was set up to bring an end to slavery, um, but also to create a strong nation. Um, and actually um, economically slavery did not help anyone except for slave owners. Um, and it actually like hurt the American economy as a whole because it kept people like agriculturally um, based when that's one of the weakest forms. You look at the North was so much more powerful. The reason they won the civil war is because they were so much more powerful economically and mm -hmm. industrially um, and they fought against slavery and the South was so much further behind and that's why they lost is because, so first of all, like slavery did not help anyone economically unless you owned slaves. Right. And then also um, is that um, I think, to the point now is that we don't have like like 
Georgia is an exception to the rule. Is that like that is Georgia was about the only place that had like needed that. I'm not sure about that, but I doubt it severely. Alabama, give me a break. So, right, Alabama so is pretty my, bad. My contention with that would be is that that lasts a long time, but it's been 20 years since that particular marriage law that mm-hmm. we've been talking about has mm-hmm. been um, has been abolished, right? We don't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. And there, there are definitely some states that are more regressive than others, mm-hmm. right? And um, I have two contentions with part of what you said there is that um, – I think the individual is more important than the group that they belong to. Mm -hmm. Um, So this idea, and this is something that I've been really struggling with. And um, I've had a lot of people say a ton of different things to me because of, of my race, right. Which in itself is a form of racism and I'm not going to play the victim here. And I'm not going to say that, you know, woe is me, you know, this thing happens, but um, it's interesting how um, easily we can kind of just swap sides based on what, what we're kind of thinking and feeling. Right. And Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of thought gets put into a lot of things. Um, But you know, I, like Zayden said, is that I wasn't responsible for that. And I'm not like responsible by being white in any way, right? Like I wasn't even, I wasn't even born when that law was still around. So the, the idea that somehow I am complicit and I, it, as an individual and part of the problem because I'm white, I don't, that, that doesn't settle with me because I had nothing to do with it. And, I, you know, I'm not racist. I have nothing against anyone else. You know, like I, I try to see the world in a very practical way. And yeah, for um, sure. as, as of recently, and you guys, I grew up with all of you guys, barring yeah. Zayden and, and you, but I know, I still know you guys pretty well. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> the only time I'm mean to people is when I'm just messing around. Right. <laughs> so um, um, I, I'd like to say something. Uh, hold up. My, my brain just went to, <laughs> yeah, you're good. it's a lot of stuff. I've had a lot of thoughts cooking for a minute there. Yeah. It's all whopping really fast right now. But I really like what Talon said because what I've been hearing an awful lot in political conversation and in social conversation especially, which um, I think should are a bit more mixed than they should be, but I'm not going to go into that, but um, is people of color tell me, your race did this to us in the past. It's You guys did this to us. It's your fault. You fix it, right? And lots of stuff like that. But I... I didn't do any of that and you weren't enslaved. So uh, I don't see the need for current uh, justice in that once laws have already been reformed and things have already been put into change. I don't think it's perfect. Uh, Things are still pretty nasty. Um, One thing is that most people tend to stay in the economic class as their parents do. That's uh, just uh, the majority. Mm-hmm. So, if the, when the slaves uh, got out of slavery, it wasn't perfect for them. They were pretty dirt poor, and uh, that's really sucky that they went through that. So, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, they are still suffering from some poverty today, and it's a bit imbalanced in that direction. And but also statistical uh, evidence not statistical evidence, statistical correlation does not equate to proof in my opinion, because um, I just hear a lot of people say, well, black people are more likely to be stopped by police. They're more likely for longer incarceration. That is, that is conclusively true though. And that is directly correlated. And I, I contend it is directly correlated because of the way that police systems in the United States were designed to enforce laws that were racist against people of color. And, and like, don't get me wrong. Like I hear what you're I, like both, um, I, Isaac, right? Yeah. Um, Isaac and Talon, I hear what both of you guys are saying. 
Um, because like I, I too never like enslaved a person and like, I do not go around like actively saying or propagating racist ideas. And I very much like to like, I, I would very much like to tell myself that I'm not a racist because of that, you know, and because like we live in a society that at least theoretically issues that kind of thing. But here's the thing is these systems are all pervasive. And when we talk about racism, like most, most of the time, racism today does not manifest itself as cross burning or as waving Confederate flags, though sometimes. Generally, that's not how it manifests. How it manifests in the contemporary age more often is rather the institutional, like quieter insidiousness of it, which is to say that like I as a white person have never yelled a racial epithet. I have never burned a cross in someone's front yard, but that doesn't mean that I am not complicit in a system that was designed to subjugate people of color. Because my ancestors, who admittedly, I am not, I am not my ancestors, um, but because my ancestors as white people actively worked to subjugate and dehumanize people of color, it, I had an experience um, that I can relate to this very briefly, that is like over, over the last semester, um, and this doesn't seem like it's going to be a valid point, but follow me down this rabbit hole for a second. Yeah. Um, over the last semester, I had a class that was abruptly switched to being online after all of the pandemic stuff started settling in. And um, there was a series of assignments that were due on Sunday nights. And because they were due on Sunday nights, they wouldn't appear in the weekly folder that like you were supposed to be working on the whole week. So you could like go through and do all of the assignments in that folder and still you wouldn't get a good grade for that week because you hadn't realized that there was another assignment coming up, right? So right. like that, like just by nature of a flaw in the design system, um, which was certainly not meant to be insidious, it was just like a, a goof, um, it brought down the grades of a lot of people in that class because they just didn't have access to the right information and the right resources. And so after we started to find out about this, a whole bunch of us emailed our professor and we were like, hey, here's the situation. Um, can we do like makeup work? Like what, like what can we do to fix this? And she sent out an email a handful of days later to the class that basically said, so I realized that I made a mistake and that was it. She said we couldn't do makeup work. She said there was nothing that could be done. It was just a mistake in the past. And so just leave it and let it go and let it be, you know, like that was two weeks ago. That's not today. That's not my problem today. You know, I've realized my mistake. I've realized the mistake of my past. And that means I'm done. That means I'm absolved. And that's like, that was frustrating for me then. And it's frustrating for me now to see people, particularly white people assert that because they themselves were not actively participating in what is considered capital R racism in the past, that we are not still complicit in a system that was designed to harm people who don't look like us, because we are. And our race, as much as we like to think it doesn't define us, it does, for the reasons that Isaac was talking about. Socioeconomic class is an indicator of future socioeconomic class. And when black people got out of slavery, their socioeconomic class was crap because that's how it was designed to be. And that has not changed simply because we have theoretically reassigned the arbitration of laws, right? That, that is so deep rooted, it dates back to the 1600s in America. And if we're still fighting stuff from the 1600s, then law changes in the early 2000s are not nearly enough. So um, 
I agree with some of what you said and I disagree with other parts of it. So I'm going to start is that um, I do agree that they were hurt by slavery and some of those, a lot of those effects are still around today in the form of, like you said, like socioeconomic class. Um, so my problem in relating this back to like today is like people like, well, like we, we didn't do this. So we're, I'm not going to take responsibility for that, but I will try and fix that. And I think mm -hmm. we can all agree is that like, if we see institutionalized racism, then, well, then let's get rid of it. Um, like the police system, it was institutionalized. I don't think it is anymore. Like, um, I very much disagree. Well, um, well, please let me finish. Is that like no cop is taught in their like training, in their experience, like, oh, be racist. Like be, if it is, it, then it's an unintentional bias. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump in there real quick. Um, is that they, they probably aren't being taught that, right? But what they, what I think in Calvin's point might be here is what they're being taught is a lot more subtle than that right? It's yes. black people commit more crime. So then this, this cop has his conscious when dealing with black people is that, oh, they're more likely to have actually committed that crime mm -hmm. because of, because of, you know, what I've been told and whatnot. Mm -hmm. and, but I see your point as well. I'm mm -hmm. going to let you finish. I and just so, want to jump okay. in there. So yeah, what I'm saying is that like, and that's not like, it is racist. It's not intentionally racist. It's called an unintentional biases. And that can happen on a variety of things. Um, gender, race, whether or not you agree with someone politically, like how long you get a well, what sports you play, that happens in business all the time. Um, I've talked to my dad is that like everyone, no matter who you talk to has these unintentional biases. Mm -hmm. And so like, we can't like fix that as a system because it's not in the system, it's in people's minds. And so what we do is we just need to like change like the attitudes now um, and that will event like that will solve itself out. And then another thing I think is that in institutionalized like racism and problems of why these um, people aren't able to rise up from their economic class is that upward mobility is actually very high in the U.S. Um, I think the current problem is our welfare system. And I'll get into this is that like Talon talked about how like the de-evolution of like the family structure um, was responsible for some of this. And I would say it's responsible for most of that is that um, fatherlessness is the second best predictor of crime rates of your like your likelihood to do uh, abuse drugs um and fought and fought like you said fatherlessness is in exceedingly high in black communities like 70 percent of black people especially black poor people grow up without fathers and um like if you don't have if you grow up without a father you're more likely to have mental illness um like 96.2 percent of people um who are mass shooters and that being defined as like you shoot and like kill more than eight people, 96.2% of those people are fatherless. Mm. And so I think um, like we talk about like police brutality is that some of this is rooted in that, but, and like, but black people are also likely to commit more crime. And so that's why they're disproportionately. So what is the cause of that? And it's because of socioeconomic class. Well, what causes socioeconomic class? Well, they aren't able to rise up. And why are they not able to rise up is I would say mo like m the biggest factor in that is fatherlessness because, um, okay. so just, just a second, let me finish. Um, so like ambition is a masculine trait. It's most often, not always, but it's most commonly taught from father to their children. And so like, um, one way that could fix, uh, all of like the socioeconomic classes, if we had more black entrepreneurs and that would fix so much of this, but we don't. And that's highly attributed to fatherlessness. And I think that's a perpetuation of our welfare system. You know, designed, um, and it actually like subsidizes single motherhood. Um, and 
I know people personally that have taken advantage of this where they don't get married and they have kids. That way they can claim this dependency and they can actually receive government funding. And it's the de-evolution of the family structure. And that if we can increase that, that will um, highly increase and get rid of most of these problems. And here's the thing. I don't, I don't really disagree with you there. Like I, uh, as previously stated, I think that like, statistically you're right that stronger family units are correlated with like stronger socioeconomic class stronger social mobility so um you've contended that father like that like fatherlessness or that like weak family units are the leading cause of lacking socioeconomic class let's say that's true what is the leading cause of fatherlessness among people of color in the united states institutionalized racism with laws designed to rip apart families of color and so I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with your premise. I just think that what we have to see is that with all of these issues, with everything from police brutality to poverty to all of these things that we associate with the black community, um, the reason that we associate it with that is because these systems were designed specifically, intentionally, and originally very cruelly to inflict these social ills upon people of color. I just want to say one thing, because um, we, we've talked a lot about in, uh, systematic racism, um, and I think Zayn actually brought up one point that I, don't, I kind of just didn't catch about that system actually happening in place, because a lot of, we mentioned how racism, like systematic racism, we kind of do it without really intending it, or it's mm -hmm. something more subtle. Uh, I think Zayn's example of uh, the fact that uh, like single mothers are being more favored, right? Is was that was that it? Yeah, like single yeah. motherhood is subsidized by the government. That, so, I like, yeah, yeah, I believe that is something that exists in our policy right now that is um, subtle enough, but it's still something that's causing a problem mm -hmm. where uh, separation of families are happening, and that that could be example. It's not exactly racism, but it's easier to. Ha I would say it's easier to happen in those kind of communities, yeah. and. Yeah, that's exactly the point I was trying to make is that it's not necessarily institutionalized racism is that these policies are like disproportionately hurt black people. And I am on 100% with you, Calvin, is that we need to fix this. And I think that like um, with like the bring it back to date with the list of demands of like, well, we want to get rid of this. And we want to get like, well, what how do we get rid of that? And I would say is that to get rid of this like institutionalized racism. And I'm with you. Like, I think most people in the U.S., is wherever there's institutionalized racism, let's fight it. But um, I think the like the mainstream media and the population are like trying to hunt ghosts and see places where it's not. And so we need to fight it. Is that like the welfare system and subsidizing single motherhood is that that's specifically designed and that actually hurts more than it helps. And so let's fix that. Yeah, it's like, um, I say this a lot, but I like what you said about them hunting ghosts. It's like Don Quixote making giants out of windmills. I when I look at the news, if I um, if there's an article about a black man who killed another black man, it's just a man who murdered a man. If it's a white man who killed another white man, it's just a man who murdered a man. If it's a black man that killed a white man, it's just a man who murdered another man. But if it's a white man that kills a black man, I always see in the title, white man kills black man. It's always a race thing when mm -hmm. they make it like that. They're trying to perpetuate something that I don't think is really fully there. I believe that there is much social prejudice and racism today 
uh, civil rights wasn't that long ago. It was in a lot of people's lifetimes that that mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they still have that in their brains. But I don't think that's institutionalized. Um, what you've put up, uh, what I've seen mostly is laws that have been in the past that have since been abolished as proof that it's institutionalized racism today and statistical evidence. And um, statistical evidence can be helpful, but I don't think that it is proof that there's flaws in the system, especially when you're Why trying not? to point out the real nitty gritty, because can um, I, can I, I don't expect this idea. Yeah, just, just real okay, quick. Yeah. I don't expect that in a perfect world, like it's chaotic and messy. I don't expect it all to be 50, 50, whatever against all the races. Um, uh, just because a number says something doesn't equate to mm. causation, but I don't say, I'm not saying that it doesn't either, but mm. you know, so telling, just, just like just yeah. two sentences real yeah. quick is that I think what he's trying to make is that, um, there's racial disparity, but that does not equal racism is that without like mm -hmm. evidence of racism, like the racial disparity is not necessarily racist. Right. Cause but the evidence of racism says that, mm -hmm. uh, you cannot marry outside of your race that is specifically institutionalized. That is written in the law mm -hmm. to be racist. But mm -hmm. today, uh, that law is gone and I don't, uh, I haven't seen any evidence put forward of laws meant to subsidize people okay. of color. Uh, so, I don't know where it's been written. Uh, I, I see people, um, I think there are racist cops out there. I think there are racist judges, but those are just people who should lose their jobs. They're not, it's not the system. It's not what's written into the system. They're just slipping through justice's fingers. Right. Pop going okay. out there who just wants to go beat up black people, he should be off the force. And if he hasn't been caught yet, then that's unfortunate, but that is illegal. I hear uh, what you're saying. Affirmative action and laws put in place to integrate uh, diversity and uh, equal opportunity for everyone. There isn't laws that I see meant today meant to put classes in order. As far as I can tell, yeah, a black okay. man, if he tries hard enough, even if he was born uh, in poverty with different cards, uh, if he works hard and he's lucky enough, then he can make as much as a white man. And I don't think that there's laws put in place there, yeah. even though he might run into somebody, a teacher, a policeman, a judge, whomever, who will say your skin color <laughs> means you should be put in this place instead of this place. Right. I don't believe that's the government. I, so, so I just, I just have, and I know Talon has a point here, so I'll just like keep this very brief. But then my question to you is, is what's the best way are only laws racist can only a law be racist no, no. then then the idea that be, simply because racist laws have been abolished means that racism is disappearing is incorrect as you guys have already said you know like racism is not i i mean i'm, I'm in agreement here with you that racism is not fixed institutional or personal racism is not fixed by like blanket changes of laws, though those are helpful and often necessary, right? right? It, I do believe, I agree with you that this is something that has to like originate with and come from individuals. But as individuals, we do not function in a vacuum. We function in a society that until this century was designed to subjugate institutionally people of color. And even if those laws have all been taken off the books, that doesn't mean that they've been taken out of the hearts and minds of the people who put them in place and the subsequent generations who have come after. Because I, this is what I think is really key, is that 
law is not the arbitration of racism. Right. So now I have three points since uh, these things have been tossed around. And I'll, I'll start with kind of the first one that I had about um, statistics and how statistical evidence might not be conclusive evidence for something happening. And one exercise I always run myself through when I see any kind of statistic, like, um, you know, 70% of black people are father or black families uh, don't have a father or, you know, black communities commit more crime is, um, okay, we have that percentage. That might be true, but why do we have that percentage? What other mm -hmm. factors go into this besides race? Now, that's not to say that race isn't a factor because it most certainly is, but there are plenty of other factors as well. You know, um, geographical location, what local government looks like that in that right. place, what local police looks like mm -hmm. in that place, what... I'm going to just um, give an example real quick. Like the cities with the highest crime, like Detroit, Chicago, also very high black populations. If I can add on to that um, with stats, or taking a, like a high school DC course in the last year, uh, we've learned a lot about how experiments should be conducted and what the difference is in meaning between correlation, association, and cause and effects. There's all kinds mm -hmm. of different definitions for those. And correlation uh, usually wants, to, a lot of people want to take it as cause and effect. But if they, depending on how the experiment was done, usually that cannot actually be uh, inferred. Usually um, there's a lot of confounding variables that can be found in the data, data that's collected. Um, and so usually the word for a lot of experiments are conducted if it's um, if you randomly select it from the population, but you don't randomly select what happens to them, like specifically like an experiment, then you can only imply um, association. So that, and I guess in the context of what we've been talking about, um, correlation would meaning that yes, race does have an association and um, but there's other confounding variables uh, that are underlying that. And we talked a little bit about this in our first episode, actually. It was probably my favorite part of our first episode mm -hmm. where we were talking about, um, uh, you know, minority representation in popular culture, mm -hmm. in popular media. And one of the things that I brought up is, um, you know, th there's so much more to people than uh, their sex, their gender, their race, um, and their ideological beliefs, right? And a lot of the problem that I have with statistics and with a lot of laws and a lot of what people talk about is that the individual gets completely forgotten. We, and that's not to say that we don't have to generalize sometimes because we do. Right. But in yeah. doing so, we, we marginalize certain people who belong to a group who necessarily don't believe the same thing or who are situated differently, but because of one, um, one factor, they are kind of lobbed in with that group. So mm -hmm. depending on like, there, there are tons of people of color who are way better off than any of us, mm -hmm. right? And we'll probably have less obstacles getting to a higher socioeconomic class than some of us here. Now, that, that might not be the norm, but we're taking, we're taking a generalization and we're applying it to every individual. Right. Um, and there, there are just so many factors that go into making someone successful or not successful. And some of them are because of, of racist things, right? There, there mm -hmm. are ob obstacles in your way. Um, and, you know, uh, an example for me, because this is something that I can relate to, is I've kind of contended the idea of um, affirmative action, right? Because in a way, like it, it, it tries to level the playing field, but it kind of just makes it unbalanced. How so? Um, there have been cases of African-American people getting into Ivy League schools who are not prepared to actually be in those schools, and they drop in with, drop out within the first semester, and they often have taken those spots away from um, Asian Americans who have uh, more obstacles on SAT scores and things like that because generally their race performs better so we need to reserve more slots for races that don't perform as well. So that's kind of just one example of 
frankly, institutionalized racism, not the kind that maybe we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. my, my fear is that throughout all of this is that we're going to kind of just flip it. Right. And we're right. just going to be racist in different ways and we don't really solve anything. Yeah. That's not justice. That's revenge. That's the opposite. Okay. Here's the thing though. First of all, primarily, if there's anyone who has a right to demand not just justice, but revenge, it would be the black community. Sure. Sure. Who faced like, I mean, like I, 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 I am glad that the black community is not asking for revenge, but they are asking for justice because they have every right to demand the first of those things. Um, and the thing about, the thing about affirmative action is that like, I also, for, for a very long time, I was pretty thoroughly convinced that affirmative action was like backwards racism. That I was like, why are you taking away spots from like qualified people of any race, you know, just like fill a quota. But the thing about affirmative action is that it was not designed to quote, like fill a quota. Right. It, it was designed to ensure representation. Right. Right. And like, we're because, because people of color, specifically black people in, I assume, Ivy League level universities are not very well represented. And the representation is about engaging with diverse perspectives in an attempt to break down ideas that institutionalized racism holds up. And so in that respect, I think affirmative action and which affirmative action was initially implemented for two key demographics. One was black people specifically, and the other was women, right? And like b both groups of people who statistically speaking face enormous obstacles in a white male dominated society, um, particularly in terms of getting into good schools and getting good high paying jobs. And so affirmative action was designed not to be like, we're gonna take this away from the men and give it to the women, or we're gonna take this away from the white people and give it to the black people. But rather, if we do not take steps to ensure that all voices are heard, voices will be shut out. And that is more dangerous um, and ultimately more counterproductive than like tr trying to kick back against a system that is designed to favor white men. Right. And I, I definitely hundred percent agree with what you said right there. But m then my thought becomes, you know, um, do we, do we focus on diversity or do we focus on quality? Right. Because if, if the goal is to have representation in there, we're getting that we're, we're getting good representation. Affirmative action is doing its job. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but then, then people who are qualified who maybe would have performed better as a lawyer as a doctor as an engineer um are kind of shut out from the opportunity um but I, I i do agree with you there and i'm not sure that affirmative action really is going to get us anywhere in this conversation because kind of just of the nature of it and i i want to move on to the second point that i had or did Mate, you have something i just want to talk about my thoughts on affirmative action real quick is that like uh like like town said there's more to people than just their race and like diversity like that'll help but that's not going to fix anything like um there was like uh university of california is one of like the most like racist like protective of these groups schools like and out of anywhere and they like are very proud of that fact and so in 1984 they had a like their admitted class was perfect like representation pretty much of every racial group whereas like they had 72 percent white people 14 percent black people and they were like probably bragged about this like they advertised it and stuff what they don't tell you is that 70 percent of the black people dropped out and so it's more hurting them than it is helping them mm -hmm. and there was also um a story of like a black doctor who was talking he's like a lot of like i started my own practice and people didn't want to frequent it 
because I was black, not because they were racist, but because of affirmative action, they were worried about whether I would do a good job when I was in there before affirmative action took place. So they That's were just racist. I was not going to be yeah. as good of a doctor hmm. because I got in there because of the color of my skin and not how good I was. And so that's kind of what affirmative action is doing is it's an attempt to help people, but it gets rid of some of the quality and actually well, undermines them in the end. But, yeah. but can you like insulted by that if they said, okay, you get this scholarship because of your skin color. It's like, mm-hmm. wouldn't you rather give me a scholarship from my ability rather than mm-hmm. just my race? Because I have a lot more than just that to provide. Yeah, but that's making sort of a broad assumption that like people who are people of color who are admitted into, for example, institutions of higher education, that it's literally just like someone points to the first black person they see and they're like, oh, look, he's black. Let's bring him in. Right. No, there's an application process. There is still academic rigor to this. Mm-hmm. And to contend that like people of color I mean, people of color statistically are not as likely to perform well in higher institutions of education. You're right about that. But the question, again, becomes why? And it is because, at root, these educational institutions, like all institutions in the United States, were designed by white men. And they were designed to keep white men in positions of power and people of color and people people of the female persuasion in positions of subjugation, right? So, So, like, I'm, I'm not even here to contend inherently that, like, and I mean, like, women outperform men massively in terms of college, right? But, like, um, women also got the right to vote, like... Less than 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like the, 100 years ago this year. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. yeah, right. So, like, here's the thing about that. is just, like, like uh, affirmative action as an ideal is not saying we want unqualified people for the goal of, like, equalizing representation. It is saying there are qualified people who are shut out of these conversations in these institutions because that is what these conversations and institutions were designed to do. Like, I can't stress enough how, how important the design of all of our institutions, of education, of policing, of law, of government, all of them were designed to exclude specific groups of people. Like, and sometimes that's explicitly stated and sometimes it's not, but it is the case. And so then, like, that, that is the goal of affirmative action, then, is taking this institution, let's say a college, that has been designed to exclude certain groups of people and breaking that down because there are people who deserve to be heard and included. So in the case of uh, college, say, an Ivy League school, where in the design is the flaw? Where, where did the white men put the things that would put them on top rather than the other races? Where... Where is that in the system? You mean like in the design of the college itself? Yeah, in the design. Um, okay. You, yeah. you say they're fighting against the actual system the way they're fighting against the actual college. So where where is that? The history of all public universities in the United States, save those established specifically for Black and African-American students, those colleges were founded by white men. Many of them, especially the older ones, were founded by slave owners. Many of the ones subsequently founded after were funded by people who practiced racist ideals and beliefs. So by nature, therefore, of the ideals and beliefs of the people who created, who wrote the bylaws, who founded the initial admission requirements, who decides who gets aid and financial assistance, All of that is grounded in centuries of ideals that white people are more intelligent than black people. And thusly, like, again, even if that, even if that stuff has now, like in the 21st century, been decodified, even if it no longer says like, hey, we don't do black people here, 
Um, the fact of the matter is, because of the design of those institutions, designs that were made by slave owners or by people who practice racist ideals, those translate. Those translate through generations, they translate through institutions, even if they are theoretically decodified, because it's about more than just the wording specifically of a bylaw. It's about, like we were talking about earlier, and like I think we're all in agreement, it's about what people believe deep down inside of them. So that, so, that brings me to the second point that I was going to talk about, is that all of these things are so much more subtle than they were. Mm -hmm. But no one wants to act like they are. And look, I'm the number one person to say that I don't want to believe that racism exists. I don't, because I, I, I really want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I, I want, I, my, my worldview is that I, I hope everyone is awesome, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then the crushing reality of it is not everyone is, yeah. right? So even, even giving these people the benefit of the doubt, there becomes a line when you have, you have to draw it that where most people don't really know what is and isn't racist, right? Um, like you were saying is that it might not be written into the bylaws. It might not be written into the admission requirements. Um, but the sentiment is still there, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a lot more subversive, it's a lot more covert, and it's a lot harder to recognize. Mm -hmm. So when a lot of people kind of come out um, and say, oh, you know, it's not racist anymore, there's nothing in the law that says it's like that black people can't do this, like the, the inherent biases of the people who are carrying out that law are still there, right? It's not written there, but the intention is there, right? Um, which I think has been a lot of your point, right? Yes. It's not so blatant anymore, it's a lot more covert. Mm -hmm. Um, but then the third point that I had is that it's not illegal to be a racist. And, you know, if, if, if people are in a position and they, they hold racial biases, you know, it's not illegal to run around saying the N word, you know, it's not, it's not illegal to ho to harbor racist ideologies. And, um, that kind of makes it difficult because I don't think that's something that we should make illegal, um, because people should have the right to have their own ideologies and ideas and, and whatnot, whether or not right. I agree with them, whether I think they're objectively wrong as well. Because yes, this isn't me condoning racism. My saying racism isn't illegal isn't me condoning it. Um, but we, we tread some very fine lines yeah. when we're talking about this because, um, you know, we've gotten a rid of not all, but we've gotten a lot of um, like written, very hard in stone racist things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so much harder to get rid of people's ideas about race yeah, um, yes. because that that's going to, but you, you can't really make a law that says you can't be racist or you're going to go jail if you're racist. Right. Um, so I really am not sure yeah. what the solution this, is. This yeah. One real quick, one real quick. Okay. Mine's short. Uh, that's why I said uh, earlier that I think it's more of a social thing than mm -hmm. a political thing. Cause um, I think people are going to be racist for, we're always going to have racist yeah, people. Yeah, always going to have racist yeah. people. Yeah. And so that's, I want to like elaborate on Isaac's point. Um, that was actually what I was going to say is that like, um, to say like back in the 1700s that America was founded on racism and that because all of these, like they were a bunch of racists, like that's not what America was founded on. It was founded on like freedom, justice and equality. And while that was- Freedom, justice and equality for white people. Wait, that's wait, the key wait, though. Wait, From the beginning, slavery was incredibly taboo. There was a lot of people um, who disagreed with it. So let me say it. is that- and still there were slaves freedom, justice, and equality, it, the fact that like slaveholding was okay is, was not because the people were necessarily bad. It was because that's what the social crime was in that it's not like that whites, like they're the first slave owner in America was actually black. Um, when like whites with the transatlantic slave trade, um, whites like the ship owners and people would be white, but they would go and they would pick up black slaves from other black tribes. So, and 
it's not that like and this wasn't a problem in just america like there were slaves all around the world and there are actually slaves all around the world today yes true. um and yeah. so it's not a problem with america and our mm. it's a problem with humankind like it's a human problem it's not in america or yeah. a white problem and i think that's what like we see today is that like um it's not a problem with our like i would say with our institutions like don't murder that was made by racist white males but like you know mm -hmm. that like how is that racist now don't murder and so to say that these like institutions like fundamentally perpetuate this idea of racism i would say is wrong because just because they were founded by bad people or by racists doesn't mean that that perpetuates today in the institution i would say in the hearts and minds of people there are racists out there and i think we should do all we can to prevent them from being like discriminating in like business or in the workplace or things like by race but i don't think that um that's because like the institution is then like longer racist i think if it if it has like racial tendencies and stuff that's more of in the hearts and minds of the people rather than the institution itself but that that itself is to contend that there is a separation inherently between social ideas and political practice which there is not right like i i don't even see how that's a possibility because our political opinions are informed by our social opinions mm -hmm. right in fact like i i would contend that there's not really a difference um, and like having studied extensively like the nature of these institutions in the United States, um, primarily, again, I feel like I can't stress this enough. Freedom, justice, equality, all admirable ideals, and they were not practiced by the people that we look back to as the progenitors of those. Most of the founding fathers, most of the founding fathers were slave owners. And we cannot separate that. We cannot look at that and say, well, just because they were slave owners doesn't mean that they weren't still practicing freedom, justice, and equality. No, that is precisely what it means. Our founding fathers, as much as I admire them for their political prowess, because they were brilliant, brilliant men who designed a system that has lasted us and continues to be like debatable and contestable and improvable. Like I have mad respect for the founding fathers' political intuitions, but they were racist as heck. And that impacts the way that the institutions continue to operate because we cannot separate the past as an institution, as a phenomenon. We cannot separate that from the present because the present is nothing more than a byproduct of the past, which unfortunately, especially in the United States, which was dominated at least in the upper classes in the 1790s by white male, particularly slave owners, it was designed to be racist. And it like, even if it's not currently designed in the same way, it's still inextricably tied to that past. And I would, I would contend the idea that um, the, the present and the past are like, they are linked and the present definitely is a byproduct of the past. Mm -hmm. Right. But we, we look back on past and this history and we see this all the time is like, we, we have history, so we don't repeat it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so this idea is, um, you know, you know, freedom, justice, uh, equality and whatnot, those, those founding principles might not have been practiced but that doesn't mean that we can't practice them now because Agreed. these principles are yes. the same, right? Mm -hmm. and, and how they were practiced, because I'm not gonna say that they weren't practiced. They were just practiced from a vastly different social standing as we understand. They it. were practiced miserably and poorly. By our social standing, not by, at the time, like white property owning males having freedom, justice, and equality, that's what they deemed I, okay. Yeah. Like now today we don't deem that. And so it's like, 
I think that there is no proof that any of us, if we were born into slave owning like houses and we were taught that that was okay, that's what it is, that we wouldn't ourselves um, become slave owners and be okay with that. Not because of who we like, who we are, because that's what the social climate was. Is that right? At the time, they practiced that to what they believed was right and to the yes, best and I, abilities of the time and to the ideas of the time. And that's not okay by our standards now. Um, and but because we view our standards as, as differently now, um, is that 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 doesn't mean that they were inherently bad because that's, like that's a grand example of of moral relativism in that respect though because like i don't disagree you're totally right like from a purely historical context these men who owned slaves and who practiced racist policies um they they were operating in a different context they were operating in a, in a context in which socially that was acceptable and that social context was bad and wrong and simply because at the time they believed that it wasn't does not mean that it wasn't racism and slavery has always been bad. It has always been negative and it has always been destructive. And so to contend specifically that like, because they lived in a time when they thought it was okay, I guess we're just gonna let it slide. No. That, that wasn't my that, point when bringing it that, up. And I, I don't think you think that that was my point when I was bringing it up, but no. I was bringing it up as, as to say, those, those same principles are the same. We just practice them differently. And yes. we, we can't say that um, in, the, in the past that it was okay because socially it was acceptable. Right, because we've we've evolved. That's like the whole goal is to get better, right? Yes. I think we can still look back in some ways to that as a source of inspiration to say, you know, this is where we went wrong, this is where we went right. Let's try to emulate the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff. So I agree. Where, where I'm I'm yeah. thinking this idea of, you know, we're, this is all just a result of you know bad white dudes in the past, mm -hmm. right? Which, yes and no i don't think it's quite as simple as that i think that has a lot to do with it but i think there's a lot more nuance to it there is a lot more nuance to and it i would yeah. say that um like <coughs> a lot like how like how do you come by back then like the idea that all people are like you can't oh like God. today um people back then <laughs> could not comprehend like gay marriage and stuff like that we deem okay like they couldn't comprehend that because of the time that they were in like um it like slavery was not okay neither was racism but to say like i have fallen victim to peer pressure occasionally where i have done something or not done something because i felt peer pressure mm -hmm. now i look back and like i should have done that or i should not have done that and um like i made a mistake but the immense social pressure and like ideologies back then were different and so it wasn't okay but it wasn't because they were like evil people and whatnot it's because that's what everyone believed. If you're taught from a very early age that racism okay is that like black people like you're you're not going to change that. And you see this with like children generally share almost always like they um have the same political ideas as their parents because that's what we're taught from an early age. And like um and I wasn't trying to make the moral relativist argument is that oh it was okay back then because it was definitely not. But you can also you also can't say well, these people are bad because they did not have the revolutionary social like ideas that we have now. And since the very beginning, there were founding fathers who wanted to make mm -hmm. slavery uh, be yeah. banned mm -hmm. in the Constitution. They wanted mm -hmm. to write that in there, but they, you know, they just got outvoted. And it was a hot topic or debate for decades. And by the time of the Civil War, 
uh, 80% of the national income came from the cotton production put on, uh, produced by the plantations. So in order for a lot of them kind of just put up with it a, because it's what they knew, you know, America is not special. Everyone did slavery and, uh, be- I will contend that idea. America is special. I'll get to that in a second. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> but um, also that in order to own slaves and to treat people like that, you have to dehumanize it. Mm-hmm. That's why they were legally considered property. And uh, when they were released from, when they were emancipated, they, those ideas were still around that they were somehow lower because that's what they had to do in order to treat them the way they did in order to be that terrible to a person it's not right but i say it's understandable and predictable on how that would occur i don't think it's just because white people inherently want to separate the races i think people want money for themselves i think people want money for them their family and if you put someone in a person of power in a position of power they're going to try and do what they can and if you end up with such a squonky economic system that say 80% of the national income comes from these plantations, they're going to do what they can. They're going to work the workers as hard as they can. They're going to, you know, do whatever they can to boost production up for the country, for their family and for themselves. Even if it's wrong, I think people Mm -hmm. with too much power will do that. I'll talk a little bit about this. Is that like human psychology and stuff is that social pressure and peer pressure is one of the most powerful like weapons and things that there is um there's a book called ordinary man i would definitely i have not finished it i barely even started but i think you would love it calvin um it talks it's kind of a little bit dark but it talks about um it's called ordinary men it's about these um police officers but they were just normal police officers in germany and then they were eventually trained in poland as to where they could like take pregnant women and go and shoot them in these fields to dispose of them and it's like that's terrible terrible but um these weren't like they weren't right like terrible terrible like people to start out with it's that that that's what they were taught like they were kind of like of course is that like these were ordinary police officers these were just like normal people but they can be trained that is that we all in us have a malevolence or a capability that we can be trained and brainwashed to do this like um little boys with like hitler's campus that like you want to fit in you want to be cool and like the nazi idealism is what they think and so you're going to be trained and taught um that like jews are lesser that this is not like bad um like it's that like they're like they're demons essentially and like Mm -hmm. that's not okay that's not right at all but can you blame like the little boys for believing that like it it's not that like they had came up with these ideas on their own it's that they they were taught for sure and I would say it was like, okay, so I would say like the case of the founding fathers is that like they made tremendous social progress um, because like just because they could, like they didn't, um, and I would disagree with some of what you said, like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they were slave owners, um, which is not right. They also, which I think is a little bit controversial and kind of hypocritical is that they wrote, like Thomas Jefferson has a bunch of journals that he wrote that are on about how he thought slavery was wrong. Um, they wanted to get rid of it, um, but he's like, but since it's around and we don't have the power to change this for 50 years, like I might as well profit off of it, which is fairly hypocritical, yeah. but like like they didn't, um, and the reason that like they, 
created slavery in the first place is because they thought that it would be more important to form a strong nation than to immediately abolish slavery. And as soon as like the time limit ran out that they could start making laws on slavery, um, that's essentially about the time when the Civil War broke out and soon after right. like all the slaves were emancipated. So I think they wanted and they tried and they actually set up a system in which we could make more social progress. But to say that because they did not make perfect social progress and that they were is like wrong because in 200 years, things that we do that are normal to us are going to be viewed mm -hmm. as socially terrible. You're not like, you shouldn't have done that. That's terrible that you even thought that or did yeah, that. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, but to like say, and they will be wrong. And I think like some of the things we do maybe are wrong, but I think that we are fairly limited in our ability to like differentiate how we grew up. And you have a, I saw a post that says um, like, you have a responsibility to be more social and more um, moral than the gen generation that of your parents. Which is why I think this is all a generational thing. Because uh -huh. if, if if the contention is is that people still hold these racist ideas and ideologies and practices, which they do, mm -hmm. um, then the way we get rid of them is by it's going to sound weird, but breeding a generation that doesn't have those ideologies, mm -hmm. right? Push right out of the system. Now that is we could get into some super slippery slopes really, really quick with trying to determine what are you think and how we do that, right? Because if we institutionalize it, right? Mm, so like school, one of the main jobs of public education is to socialize the young, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's one of the goals of the government is to socialize the young. So the, the idea of that is to, to build up some sort of patriotism so that they, they believe in their country and they, they have something to stand for and that they're able to communicate with people and you know, be, become effective members of society and whatnot. Um, but when you start indoctrinating them, because if we go, let's talk about the Nazi regime, if we start indoctrinating people to think a certain way, like the, the means of that, regardless of what the end result is, is that the means of that are super anti-American. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean that in the sense that it's very anti-American values, not necessarily super anti-American historical practices, because mm -hmm. those two um, are, are kind of separate things. Right, because America hasn't always lived up on the global stage to its standards. Mm -hmm. Right, we've done some super bad stuff on the global stage, yeah. um, but those those are not traditional American values that that they're upholding. And I I really hate when that gets misconstrued because it's like, well, America and the CIA did this thing, and it's like that's not an American value. Mm -hmm. That's just the American government screwing up. You're right. right. It's that's not an American value. But the fact that American like here's the thing: if it's not an American value then why did the American government full of American citizens who grew up with American values, why did they do those things? And I'm not here specifically to say that like, like everyone in government is somehow un-American because I don't believe that. But like to, to a point made earlier by both Zayden and Isaac, it, it, it's a question of societal pressure. It's a question of economics. It's a question of like all of these things that ultimately like drive our desire to dehumanize other people because it turns a profit, because it makes some people's lives easier, specifically the people who have already existed in positions of power, namely straight white males, right? So like, like you're right. I don't think that like CIA missions, specifically like a, a specific example of the CIA doing something crappy that's relevant to this is like during and subsequent to the civil rights movement, um, the CIA did comprehensive research led by J. Edgar Hoover in an attempt to find dirt on civil rights leaders so that they could discredit the entire movement. And they like 
literally invented crimes and they would like during the war on drugs instituted by Nixon and subsequently perpetrated by Reagan. Like the war on drugs is bull crap because the CIA literally and specifically went into communities of color to instigate massive use of lethal and addictive drugs so that they would be able to cripple civil rights leaders. Like this is yep. not, yep. not often cited, but it is historical fact. Yep. And like, is that evocative of what I would contend American values are? No, of course not, at least not theoretically. But then why was it perpetrated by an American government full of American people raised on theoretically the same American values as us if it doesn't have something to say about how we function as a nation and as a government? I think my answer to that would be that it's a lot harder to uphold your values than to do what you think is right. Um, and one of the fundamental American values is, um, you know, you have the freedom to be an individual. You can have your own belief system. You can, you can do all of these things that make you you, which is going to be so different from someone else. Brought up in the same, same American values under very similar circumstances, uh, but that lived experience, you know, kind of perpetrates that. But as far as the government goes, is that when, when you put someone in a position of power, I think, and I don't have any conclusive evidence for this, but I think it becomes a lot easier to forsake your values in favor of more power, more money, or more fame. I agree. And whatever you can get away with. Right, because yeah. it, they're raised on the same values. And I don't think anyone gets into, pol well, I don't wanna say anyone, but most people don't get into politics um, for the money, the fame, and the power, mm -hmm. right? There certainly are. There's a much larger chunk than there should be. But by right. the end of their political careers, why are they still in politics? It's for money, it's for fame, and it's for power. Yes, right? I agree, generally so, speaking. And, Again, I'm not really sure how to solve this. And we can, we can talk about election laws and term limits and whatnot as far as we want. But, you know, another really hard thing about America is that it's so diverse. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to govern. And it's very hard for the government to do their job well. And I would contend that most of the time they don't do their job very well. Um, what it comes down to is um, having, having local governments, I think, that, that kind of boost the values of that community. Now, when that becomes a problem is when one community's values are vastly different from another community's values. Mm -hmm. And then and then they both go arguing to the federal government. And they're like, this is the way it is. And they're like, no, this is the way it is. So it's it's hard to say, you know, Georgia didn't get rid of its, uh, its uh, ban on transracial marriages until 2000, right? But mm -hmm. what was the first state to do that? Like, that's such a vastly different cultural thing that has always been part of, well, I don't want to say always, but most, especially recently has been, you know, a super defining thing of America is that we're the melting pot, right? We're often referred to as the melting pot in the world. So how do you, how do you, as a federal government sitting in Washington, DC, how do you do a good job governing every single one of your citizens when there are so many different belief systems, when one of our fundamental belief systems is that other people can have belief systems and share them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the whole reason the constitution just to keep the idea of state governments, but also establish that national level, kind of keeps, keeps it, everything glued together. Right. And in my personal opinion, uh, I think that the values in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were, you could say, ahead of their time. I think they were revolutionary and there was a lot of small-minded people, even small-minded people in charge, that sort of went along with it and didn't really understand it. I think that a government by the people for the people uh, doesn't have room for racism. I don't think it has room for institutionalized sexism, even though those were all things in, say, Britain, in Africa, in China. Uh, racism and sexism were happening there in their own ways. So I think that 
the way we have the system, uh, even though it went on for a while, it built up and built up and built up until uh, it couldn't happen anymore. We had civil rights movements, we had feminist movements, we had civil wars, wars about yeah. those stuff mm -hmm. because we could not have one or the other. We couldn't have freedom, uh, everyone can vote when these people are free and they can't vote. We, we can't have both. Right. So I think that they were actually very revolutionary, even though George Washington was a hypocrite by owning his slaves. Uh, I think. Yeah. Was and I, I totally, I, I agree with that, you know? And I think that like the reason that we're seeing today protests like are currently happening is because we're not done with that. Right. Like there's a very strong temptation that I have, like as a person who's studied, especially the 1960s and 70s civil rights movements and like seeing all of the progress that was made, you know, I have this impulse to be like, OK, look, like we, we got the Civil Rights Act through. We've been working to try to figure out like the best ways to integrate communities, you know, and like that all happened in the 60s and 70s. So we're done now. Like racism is done. We had a black president. We're good, but we're not done. Right. And that's precisely why the protests are happening is because we are still locked in that same struggle that America has had for over 400 years. That is that liberty and justice for all is still not in practice. We're maybe kind of theoretically getting there, but very slowly and we're not anywhere near close yet. And my take on it is that we'll never get there. Um, I mean, that's, 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 that's yeah, not, that's not yeah. like it's the same reason that we're always going to have racist like evil will just always be, right? Yes. And we talked about this when we met last, is that the baseline is misery, right? Mm -hmm. And our, our goal is to get rid of as much extra of that as we can. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's going to be hard to, to do that. And another thing is that it's going to take time. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean this to discourage anyone. And look, everyone who's out peacefully protesting and, and exercising their rights to be there and all that, like, Awesome. And I, I have a super high tolerance for protest because the idea behind civil disobedience is to break unjust laws. Yes. Right. So I have an incredible high tolerance for that. Um, but, you know, when it comes to violence and, and alternative methods of doing that, it, it gets a little bit more muddy for me. It's still not cut and dry, but it gets a lot more muddy for me. Agreed. Um, it's going to take time because what the George Floyd rebellion has been going on two, three weeks now. Mm -hmm. but look at what it's already done it's it's banned choke holds and knee holds in a lot of states and you know yeah. states are looking at refunding or reforming their police programs the whole nation is talking about reforming like we've made incredible progress in just the last three weeks now that's not to say that's all going to go away in four right and there are going to be other problems that come out of this um because there's there's radical people on every side right mm -hmm. and those radical people are going to use this as an opportunity to get more of what they want um but it's it's going to take a little bit more time because you know, our government moves slow. That's the nature of it. And almost mm -hmm. by design, it moves slow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it tries to listen to everybody. That's what you got to do is to move slow. Like, I don't think it was bad that the cop that killed George Floyd took a while to get his punishment. Right. And, it and was, he still was, got it way faster because yeah, I, I think the, the state prosecutor or the district attorney or something like that said it usually takes about six weeks to get anywhere on a on a police case mm -hmm. they did it in like a matter of days yeah yes. so that's well, that's kind of insane right yeah, yeah. And which is kind of scary in a way because it's if, if the mobs because like that's kind of to mob kill a mockingbird right is kind of the thing that i always think about is like he was found guilty and he was guilty that i'm not disputing yeah, that yeah. but yeah. if he, if, yeah. if he yeah. wasn't what if he wasn't and everyone still asked for his head we would have put it we would have put a good person in jail 
Right. Well, okay, but but at root, here's the thing. That cop was not a good person. There was video evidence of him right. doing this horrible which, thing. Which is why I'm saying that he he was he was tried and found guilty and there's no disputing that. And, and, and here's weren't. the thing. I, I hear what you're saying though. Like the the fear that innocent people will be hurt in this is totally valid. And that is exactly why protests are happening throughout the country. Because people of color for literally centuries who have been innocent of any crime except the color of their skin have been killed, have been brutalized, have been denied basic human dignity, right? So like, I totally hear what you're saying. And I think that it's important that we make sure that justice is had for innocent people. But to, to like, that's one of the things that's really bothering me about a lot of conversation around the police force in the United States is everyone is very concerned with making sure that the police force is kept safe, that good police officers are kept safe, as they should be. But the whole reason that these protests are happening is because the police force as a whole, as an institution, has not been affording that same level of basic human dignity or justice to communities of color, ever. Not now, not in the 1700s, never. See, and that's where we go back to a bit of a generalization like I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. because there are police departments that do a bang up job. Yes. Awesome. And, and, and you know, they, they live up to the values that we want to see in our police. Right. Um, um, many but, the- but again, I, I do see yeah. what you're saying, right? Is that there, there are some bad police departments out there mm-hmm. and something needs to happen with them. But I think part of it has to do with um, just a, a lack of investment into them. Not, not from a monetary standpoint, because the NYPD has a $7 billion yeah. yearly budget. Uh-huh. That makes them like the 10th largest military force in the world. <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Right? And what do they do with it? What do they do with it? They specifically they purchase material so that they can militarize the police, which is a whole other issue, right? But that's like something that started after 9/11 specifically is in an attempt to prevent terrorism, which like admirable goal, but in in an event, in, in an attempt to prevent terrorism, the militarization of police forces. Police forces and we see this in Washington DC right now literally have tanks at their disposal. And like this is something that happens regularly through the nation and they have these enormous budgets because of the politicization of things like the police. And they use those enormous budgets to purchase outlandishly, ridiculously kind of terrifying things that are subsequently used, it should be noted, specifically to oppress people of color. And two things I want to bring up. The first one is that the thing that the government is best at is poor spending of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like $7 billion. It's a lot. If we invested it in it, in the NYPD in the correct way, they could be a million times better. Mm-hmm. And I would contend if we invested, cause like the, the defund the police movement that's been going around, which is like, sounds really scary and horrifying. And it's like, reform you know, the police movement. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I think the kicker is that the word defund makes us make like made me when I heard it be like, Oh, we're going to like pull funding. Like we're going to remove police from the streets. And no, that's not at all what the defund the police movement is about. It is exactly what Talon was just saying. It is about taking the egregiously outsized funding given to militarized police forces and reinvesting that in smaller forces and in community organizations that are able to meet the needs of these communities far better than a police force with tanks can. I've seen some videos trying to like understand the idea of de- like defunding the police a little bit better. And there was one I really liked on how um, it, it kind of mentioned how the police can be sometimes a blunt tool, like a one size fits all mm-hmm. for all kinds of situations. And we've seen how uh, you, sometimes that's not the best thing to happen. And there was one suggestion they gave on how we could try and 
uh, add people to the police force that are more qualified to help people that they're specialized in, like mental health experts, um, drug addicts, or uh, I don't know who you would call them, but people that like help people with abuse and rehabilitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. things like that, where they could be potentially part of the police force, where they're the ones like first on site, things like that, to uh, help those kind of people. Because I think the police, if you're just gonna um, violence is we're all right and how violence is not always the answer um yes. and so i think there's there's definitely mm -hmm. some uh great ideas out there that can reform the police to work and ten times another better. one to tag onto that is that i'm a super big believer that police officers should come from the communities that they serve yeah i agree yes uh, because that that gives them a lot of a lot of background and kind of what yeah. life is like for those people um but the other point i wanted to bring up earlier as far as militarizing the police um, I don't know if you guys still know this, but Hong Kong is still protesting. Yeah. Hong, Hong Kong is still trying to do their thing, right? And we forgot about that for several months. And then uh, America's got its own kind of mini version of that, which yeah. is scary. If you look at it objectively, like in a vacuum, and you look at the similarities between what mainland China is doing to Hong Kong and what some of our federal government is doing to some of our cities, it's scary, right? Militar terrible. Militarization of the police, tear gas is being used, rubber bullets are being used, military vehicles are being brought in. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very scary to me because that could very easily like we, we're getting really close to being being mainland china as far as this goes and i you know it's obviously more complicated than that and that's why i said we when we look at it in a vacuum but you know yeah no the, the the federal government's crackdown on protesters including peaceful protesters horrifying absolutely just yeah and i mean i don't mean i don't mean that in like a like talk down to like i am a political science major and i am appalled i mean no this is like a violation of it's scary and human rights yeah this is scary it's fairly scary like in like dallas like very few media actually covered that but like the police lost control of the city there was rioting everywhere like they they were like down to like trying to protect these few areas and so they had to bring in the military and i think there's some need for still order and not anarchy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. And then I also want to talk a little bit about like, like reforming and like the defund that should actually be like reforming the police department. I am all for that. If we can make a better way to make the police, like maybe less, like less have this racial disparity. Like if we can do that, I am all for that. Um, like, and the bad things that the government is just really, really bad at doing this. Like um, I'll give an example. Um, I went on a week-long camping trip with um, another ward. Not, um, How but, dare you? <laughs> oh, this is before. This is before I even knew. <laughs> anyway, um, but I was talking to a lawyer there, and he's a lawyer for the state. Um, and it was terrible what I heard from him. Is that like, um, like our jail system? Like they came in, and they're like this, like advisor from California or some other state. Like came in, and they're he's like hey, I can find some ways that like to save you guys money on your jail system and stuff. And so like, that's originally good, but it's turned out to be horrible. Cause like, we want to save money there, but we also don't want to like, we want quality as well. And so what they've essentially done is that um, they've essentially eliminated all like things for good behavior. Like you can get out earlier. And essentially is that mm. after like you've served 120% of your minimum sentence before you can get rolled, they just release you out onto the streets. And like parole, um, like they like made it so that parole like has had like massive trouble contacting the lawyers and the police to actually get these people when they're breaking their parole and stuff back on. And so like 
there are these like murderers and stuff like being released out onto the streets just to save some money and cut shortcuts like and it's terrible like we look at our coronavirus this and like people that are breaking social distancing and things like california has become an extremely authoritarian where like this couple got ticketed and fined a vast amount of money absurd for going out to watch the sunset and they stayed in their car the entire time and like um like and these people are being like put into jail for breaking like social distancing and things and like these murderers and like actual criminals are being released out onto the streets be so that they don't get infected with coronavirus and it's terrible is that like um i think one of the primary things that we kind of lost around the great depression is like the need for government intervention in a lot of ways um and there is something to say for like welfare like helping people and i think there's that a very good point of the government is that like our government has become massive and authoritarian more so than it should have ever become. So I, I want to talk a little bit, and we've talked about well, like last time we got together and we we're talking, mm -hmm. uh, we talked about welfare quite a bit. Um, but that's that's one of those things that I think is almost built. Uh, it, it is it's like an institution of racism, mm -hmm. almost yes. right? because it disproportionately targets um, African Americans and communities of color, and I mean poor people in general, right? But the main problem with um, what's it called i just said it but i forgot welfare it. welfare yeah with welfare <laughs> programs um is that it's really good at keeping people poor mm -hmm. and it's really really bad at, at helping people out of poor situations um which again is what the government is great at right mm -hmm. it's it's great at spending billions of dollars on a program just to keep people poor um but if if we were to i don't know look at other options or look at more like the church's options like we were talking about earlier the church of jesus christ the latter-day saints like self-reliance mm -hmm. programs and and they can come in and they can support ways but um they don't just do it for you you know they they help you build a skill set they help you to to go out and do um be able to join the workforce in a better way to help you fight for you know higher paying jobs and things like that mm -hmm. is that if if a program like that was instituted on, like on a nationwide level that would be super awesome that was easily available to people the problem with it is it's a huge loss there's no return on on investment for it right it, that you I, I could invest a million dollars in teaching you that and i'll never see any of it yeah. i'll never see it like it's a bad investment for the government mm -hmm. from from that perspective but you know the government's job isn't to make money or save money the government's job is to use the money that it gets in a in a proper way to help its citizens mm -hmm. and i don't think that's really ever been the case mm -hmm. i think the government is less racist more sneaky trying to get away with stuff people uh trying to get with away with what they can uh, i was just thinking about in prisons uh they need to have a certain amount of prisoners in the prison or else the prison won't get shut down and they'll lose their jobs so that means people are trying to get prisoners in there so there are oftentimes vulnerable people getting put in who are mm -hmm. innocent and i think that could lead to racial disparities even yeah. if race isn't even in the decisions but race fundamentally then is in the decisions if there is racial disparity then that by definition well, it's well, not i mean if they're caused by racism yeah like, we talked about like the welfare if there's a personally okay sorry i just want to give <laughs> okay welfare disproportionately hurts black pe people and communities but that's not because our welfare system is racist it's because of a variety of other factors so it's not that like race is necessarily the issue but it is an effect mm -hmm. because it doesn't we, we should just have to trust our politicians to not make something like that mm -hmm. you know because like 
you want to trust them that they're going to make good decisions with minimal policy impact, minimal negative policy impact, right? That's the goal. Um, but when you build a welfare system that costs billions and billions of dollars and all it does is hurt people, that's a pretty big negative policy impact, mm -hmm. right? And another thing that I've been thinking a lot too is that it's almost politicians' jobs that sound good. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's demagoguery. You're not going to get elected unless you sound good. So that makes it very, very dangerous because most of what people get is directly from politicians, mm -hmm. directly from campaigns, directly from the people like – I listen to a lot of conservative talk radio with my boss when we're in the truck because that's just what he likes to listen to. And every now and then ad campaign will come on. It's like, you know, strong Republican leadership and uh, blah, 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 and, and this and that. And like, that's all people hear about that person and they go vote for them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's very dangerous for any, any community, any group, any individual when a politician says, oh yeah, we're going to get rid of racism. It's like, sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. You know, that'd be, that'd be phenomenal but you have to think about what that actually means, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, you could just be saying that to get people's votes, yeah. you know, and that's, that's the whole point of politics. So I can't really blame them for it either because that's what they have to do to get their jobs. And that's kind of just the, the nature of the beast. And I don't think it's a good system of doing that, but you can't really blame the individual for, for that to a degree. Again, there's a million times more nuance to that. Right. But that's like, I, there's a broader point to be made. There is like, we don't fault individual politicians i mean generally with some exceptions we don't fault individual politicians with the systemic issues and because we recognize that there is a system in place that is ultimately derogatory to the public discourse racism is albeit a different context the same there is an institution in place that affects public discourse in a negative way and affects how people are able to function and how people are able to economically rise and how like all of the things that racism does. And we can recognize that individuals are complicit without condemning someone as being like a terrible human being for it, while also recognizing that there is an institution in place that is actively detrimental. And the question then becomes, what do we do about those institutions? Yeah, that's just been the underlying question this whole time, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm not really yeah. sure what to do about them. It's, um, it's you know, I, I have a handful of ideas, but again, mm -hmm. policy impacts are going to be a thing, you know, <laughs> like welfare was born out of a good place, but look at what it, what it has grown into, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that's something that the government is also good at is, um, and individual politicians specifically is that they're really good at making stuff sound good and then turning it into something that's awful. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause like the, the idea of detaining people who commit crimes like murderers, we'll say, Murderers specifically, if we find a way to, to keep murderers away from other people so they stop killing other people, that's a good thing, right? Because yes. we, don't, we don't want murderers killing people. That's, that's bad. Um, but then what is the prison system kind of grown into? The intention there is to protect people, right? Mm -hmm. But what is it really? It's hurting the, not only the people who are in them. It's, working for, it's hurting the people who work in them. It's hurting the people who created them. It's hurting everyone who everyone but the person who owns them mm -hmm. which okay you can you, okay um, <laughs> my mind yeah, was like kind of off topic so. like there like there are problems with our police department we see that the fact that cops have quotas of speeding tickets they have to give out that's absolutely stupid that like yeah. you need yeah. to yeah. this amount you have to give out like because then they're gonna like see problems like oh there's a car i'll just go give that because so that they can make money and that's like this is a problem is that we can agree that like there are problems with our institutions. And I think um, like if we can like 
we've debated about like about like race and how much of a problem and like where the problem is like if we can point to a spot where there is institutional racism um or where this institution is badly affected then we want to go fix that right and it's very difficult because uh I don't think it's good to conflate humanitarian issues with racial issues. Like, uh, I don't think even if there is a 100% definite racial disparity in police brutality, say, uh, I don't think that's the way we should address it. Um, I think it'd be better to try and get rid of all police brutality because it's not good whoever it happens to. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's. I don't think it's healthy to say we need to stop police from killing black people, because they kill everyone. There are they, bad cops who kill everybody. But and, police police brutality is statistically backed up again by decades of evidence that it does disproportionately affect people of color. You're right. We should stop all police brutality. It's all terrible. But the fact that it disproportionately affects people of color is why these conversations are erupting. You know, like, wh- why is that? Why does it turn out that way? Why is that what is sensationalized? How to fix it. Right. I, I think so, that we should, we should look at it in a way that it started, like, these movements started because of police brutality against African Americans. Yes. Right? That's, that's how all of this started. What I think would be very healthy is for it to evolve in a way that helps everyone. I think inherently by solving problems that affect specific racial minorities, we are helping everyone. Right, right. And I, I definitely agree with that. But more in the sense of like what Isaac is saying is that um, I, I, the very unfortunate thing about all of this to me has been that it has caused me to see race in a much more negative way than I ever have before. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Um, so um, because of a lot of the, the exposure that I've had to news, both conservative and liberal news, Mm-hmm. Um, now when I walk into a score, into a store and I see a person of color, I look at them and I'm like, you know, I wonder, and like all of these things, I'm like, their life is probably like this. You know, they probably had run into with, the, when mm-hmm. I actually know nothing about that person. Right. right. And everyone so on my, what the, so- what the problem, I'm sorry, what the problem becomes is now I'm looking at people and judging them based on their color, because mm-hmm. that's all I really know about them. And then all of these thoughts run through my mind, right. Which like, maybe the goal of some people is to get everyone to have those thoughts so that we can all kind of recognize and see that. Right. But then again, we're just generalizing whole population centers. So I think it, it it's a lot healthier to not look at it. I'm not, I'm, that was not a good way. The way I was going to say it would not have been a good way to say it. But I focus a lot more now on seeing race than I ever have before. And I think that is kind of the antithesis mm-hmm. of what the ultimate goal is, is to have race be a non-issue. Right. And um, since everybody that I know on like my social media and in, my personal life is talking about this issue right now. So that's very difficult because uh, I think my opinion deviates at least just a little from what's going on with the norm from what I've seen. And uh, people conflate that differing opinion to uh, different things. I've got uh, certain friends of mine who are black. I've got certain friends of mine who are Hispanic and uh, I wanted to discuss with them because most of them started the conversation, uh, these issues and what I had been seeing. And the majority of them got angry at me and uh, told me that I didn't see what was going on in their life because of my skin color. And I, uh, I've, I've lost friends. I've lost friends. Um, I lost a Hispanic friend of mine. Uh, things are really tense between a black friend of mine and they weren't before. They were just people to me. And um, even if 
my whiteness, my white privilege show, uh, makes it me blind to what really goes on in their lives. Like everyone keeps telling me, uh, even if that's the case, the political tensions aren't being very good in my personal life. Yeah. And, and that's, that's higher. I've seen all mm-hmm. kinds of people um, actually just go out and say they're deleting social media. Just like mm-hmm. everyone's like, doing they're just right done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and when I read the news, um, I now I look for, because people are bringing forward so many cases. They're bringing forward old, old cases like Ilhan mm-hmm. Omar tweeting three-year-old cases of p- police brutality. Like, okay, thanks, Ilhan. But, three-year-old uh, cases that have still not been addressed, I think, is key. Like, I'm not sure about the specific case that she tweeted. I just know it was an old one. But um, I forgot where I was going with this. Hold on. You, you <laughs> took me up. <laughs> wow. Anyone else got anything else? I got some. So, like, when we 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 look at like this is all erupted over George Floyd's death, right? Is that like we see a white man kill the black man? Is Mm -hmm. that what element did race play in that? Like he, the Mm -hmm. white officer, like like he didn't um, have any like racial slurs or anything he yelled out or anything. Like, what do do we we know? It was because yeah. Like, how do we know that it was because of race? And I think like when we see that is only race. Like when we Mm -hmm. look at like police brutality statistics and we only look at race like race is most definitely not the only factor that causes police brutality and i've talked about this before is that like if you look at like middle class black people and middle class white people is that they're subject to a, like a little bit there is a little bit of this disparity but it's almost equal um like amounts of police brutality and poor people when you look at like poor black people versus poor white people like they're subject to almost like exactly the same amounts of police brutality and it's not because the system race is like because poor people are way more likely to commit i want to see i want to see a statistic because i'm not gonna lie i don't believe that okay i will go and look up i found some on statistic.com i will look up the hard thing about i'll just mention again with statistics it's really hard to take a population that you studied and apply it to like the whole nation it's just it's almost impossible individuals right Um, but going back to kind of isaac's point about the whole the whole race thing and how it's become a lot more racially charged is i know i know friends who have lost friends for simply not doing anything right and and um i've lost like people who have unfollowed me or have have come at me and said oh you know uh, i thought you were better than this um when i hadn't even said anything yet for Mm -hmm. either side right so so this idea also that um because you're staying silent or because you don't want to weigh in on it or because you don't want to agree with them that somehow you're against them i i understand where that sentiment is coming and we talked about this earlier about being complicit in the systemic society that oppresses those people um but you know people also have the right to not post on their social media on black tuesday mm-hmm. right yes yeah, and, true. and i think it's a shame that a lot of people are coming out and it's like you know you don't understand because you're white and you're privileged and you just want to live in your own world and you know, we, we, you just can't understand me. And like, I, I don't agree with that sentiment because if, if we were to have a conversation, I could try to understand you just because I haven't had the same lived experience doesn't mean that I don't understand that these things that right. are bad. So the fact that um, there's kind of just been a, a real split and like of the first nights of the Minneapolis, like lootings, like the actual lootings, not the protests, like the actual rise yeah. and lootings is that there were people driving around in cars saying, you know, shoot the white folk and whatnot. And it's like, that's that's not really that's making more of a divide in my mind and how i approach this situation because um now now i'm so much more worried about my relationships with people of color when before there were just other people they weren't people of color they were just people here's 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 what i think there there is a key distinction to be made here though 
And it is that, like, speaking as a person who has family members who are people of color, right? Um, like, I I am white, right? I am like visibly and culturally, I am white. I have lived a white experience. White privilege is everything that I have ever known. But like, I have family members who have lived different experiences than that, and like, some certainly more so than others, and. I do not look at my family members and immediately go, oh, you're a brown person, but they are brown people and they live thusly fundamentally different experiences than I do. Experiences that, especially in the United States of America are rooted in brutality and oppression. And so like, like I, I feel for people who are currently like, particularly white people who are struggling to like make these connections and who are struggling like to have these conversations, particularly with, like people of color because it's hard and weird and there are like no answers and nobody knows what anyone is doing and it's chaos. But um, silence is not silence. Silence is speaking. It has always been that way, especially in terms of brutality. And that's not me here saying that like people who don't post on social media are like evil, bad, racist people. It's just that like for people of color who inhabit these communities, where they don't have the option to not have these conversations, like this is an integral part of their day-to-day -day existence, then to have a white person, someone who lives in a position of privilege, come to them and say, I don't understand why you're so angry. I don't understand why you're acting this way. I don't understand why you won't like talk to me about this, is rooted fundamentally at best in a place of ignorance because we just do not understand as white men like we have not lived any experience other than our own. And it's admirable to try and like come to new realizations and have these conversations and like understand things outside of ourselves. But we know, like all of us on this call present, like myself included, we know no lived experience really and truly other than our own. And yeah. thusly, like people of color have a right to be frustrated when we as the individuals in the highest positions of power in the American socioeconomic structure, when we come to them and we demand answers from them, or when we deny that these issues backed up by decades, if not centuries of statistics and anecdotal evidence, when we deny that these things are real, of course they're angry. Of course they don't want to engage with that. You know, like, I think that's the whole da danger slash core around all this is that, we're not going to solve this problem if we keep looking at each other as, oh, you're white, you don't understand, or you're black, and I can't understand, mm -hmm. or uh, I don't know exactly I don't know how the word, like, yeah. Uh, I'm white, and you can't understand me, yeah, right? right? Because we, we can do that from person to person. Is mm -hmm. You've lived mm -hmm. your lived experience, which is different than mine, so you can never understand me. And which, uh, Talon said earlier, like much, much earlier, that um, maybe the institutionalized racism in police officers is that they say hey black people statistically commit more of these violent crimes so that's in the back of their brain that black people equals more dangerous and i don't think that obviously that's going to be dangerous if that's really what's going on here is if they're walking around with that in the back of their brain and i'd say the same if the opposite was the case if they say white people commit more violent crimes and they have that in the back of their head, I'd say that's dangerous. So I say, why uh, have all these racial statistics at all? 
because if we're, if that's the problem that they're teaching that to the police officers, then what's the yeah. point in that? And so I haven't gone through law enforcement be, training for the record. So I'm kind of just yeah. shooting from the hip. I would also like to inject a little bit is like Calvin also talked about, and I have this as well is that like we have family members of color is that like, uh my like immediate family is all white but when you go to like when i go to a family reunion there's i like pretty much every race except for native american and um like latino like we have african americans we have um indians we have um like we we've got a very like large um, majority and i have i've talked to my cousins that are like black and they've said you know yeah we have had like like racist experiences of racism and things like that and like but like one thing that they've also said is that like they haven't experienced like um anything from the police i believe is like they haven't experienced anything that way which i think is good and then another thing is that like they haven't experienced like any institutionalized like problem with that like um i've like one of them she's graduating this year from utah state um I believe the nursing degree and she's going on, I believe to get her doctorate, but she's a track star. Um, she ran track for Utah state. Like she's had, she's done really, really well. Um, and, uh, she hasn't had like these problems of police coming up to her and being like, Oh, you're black. Like, what are you doing here or stuff? And like, I generally think that for the most part that it isn't, Oh, uh, I think it's, yeah. Anyways, like back to my, uh the Anyways, and then also yeah. um <laughs> yeah uh, there's a peer-reviewed journal article um i believe it's titled white police officers are not more likely to shoot minority suspects so this is like in the case That's of NPR. only yeah NPR. uh npr and yeah. it, they had a discussion about this journal article um is that uh this is of course isn't all above like um like all company of police brutality this is about specifically like shooting and murder that way um but i think it's a very strong argument is that like here's a peer-reviewed journal article that's one of the most like they are still subject to some biases and such but that's one of the strongest um like sources you can find is that here's this peer-reviewed journal article specifically stating that like minority okay. cops or, or white cops are not likely more likely to shoot minority suspects i would like to read that because it flies in the face of all statistical evidence that i've ever heard in my lifetime mm -hmm. and that like I'm, I'm open to reading it i would like to and if you can send it to me that would be lovely but i i gotta admit that which is what you should do by mm -hmm. the way is question every piece of information that you have yeah um but kind of talking again about um whatever isaac was saying i don't remember exactly but i know this is kind of a side tangent of that um but of there's there are going to be plenty of people of color in minorities that have way easier lives than i will mm -hmm. right and this isn't to say that i'm not saying or trying to generalize people um but when when we generalize and say we know black people have it the hardest and whatnot it's like some people some black people do but other black people don't mm -hmm. right so what it, what it really comes down to is certain communities and it's hard to make that generalization. And I would say, I would argue that it's impossible to make that general generalization across all 50 of the United States is yes. that th there will be, um, you know, black communities in some States that perform vastly better than black communities in other States. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, I think it's really difficult to say, um, or when, when people come out and say, you know, because of your white privilege, you'll never understand the struggles that I've had. 
which there is validity to that, right? But I could, I could just as equally go to a much more successful, much better standing, a person with a lot less obstacles who also is black and say, you will never understand the obstacles that I have because of your, your situation, how you're set up. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if race is really the defining factor here. And it, it's a big indicator of a lot of things. And this is something that we've talked about a lot, right? Is that race is a big indicator in socioeconomic status, but it's not the only one. Mm-hmm. So it, I think we, we need to kind of broaden the subject a little bit and maybe yeah. a, a little bit less on everything that's so racially charged and more mm-hmm. on, um, uh, you know, poor people. Let's, mm-hmm. let's solve poverty and that will help hundreds of thousands and millions mm-hmm. of people. And then we can move on to the next thing that will help hundreds and thousands and millions. Yeah. I'm appreciative of the point that is made specifically that like, there's always more at play, right? Like no, no human being is only one thing. No human being is just male or just black, right? Like there's always more nuance to it than that. The trouble with like uh, specifically the assertion, I think that talking about race in that regard is like detrimental I don't think that's true because the oppression, the systemic oppression exists whether we talk about it or not. And because of that, like we, to say, to my mind, to say talking about these things makes it harder to understand, therefore we shouldn't talk about them. I just, I don't understand how that's a productive method of dealing with things. To say that like, talk to say that like what we see on cable news colors the way that we view race is absolutely true it it does and it is but the solution to that is not therefore let's not talk about race the solution is let's talk about race in a way that is more sensitive and more aware of perspectives that are different from our own right like it's it's about diversity of thought as opposed to not thinking about it yeah um i don't know that kind of comes around to my point where to solve this, we can't afford to be angry at each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's no way we're going to figure this out if we're going to, uh, like, just trying to pick a fight with everyone, I guess, or because we, we've all had experiences where we've had more tense relationships or lost friends. And I think that's just really sad because that's taking us farther away from the solution than bringing us mm-hmm. towards it. Mm-hmm. And yes, talking about it made those things happen, but talking about it like what we're doing right now is also helping us realize what like we can't afford to be angry at each other either so um i don't know it is a risk we have to take to discuss it and try and understand what is going on um not sure what else i was going with that point (laughs) but i I definitely agree with what you're Mm -hmm. saying calvin about um how just because our, our views on it are jaded, jaded and, um, you know, talking about it could have a ton of effects doesn't mean that we, we just avoid talking about it. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't what I was really trying to say, but I see how it came across that way, definitely. Um, I guess kind of more of what I was trying to say is to solve um, problems kind of on a, on a bit of a larger scale, right? Is that, um, you know, it, for the sake of argument, if poverty is a higher indicator of police brutality than race, then we should solve poverty first, mm-hmm. in my mind, right? And as a consequence of that, because there are so many, um, you know, people of color under a certain poverty line, then those people also get help. That was kind of what I was trying to talk about, not so much as disassociating race from the issue, but trying to maybe find a, find a tiered way to where um, instead of helping um, specific communities is that we help what is causing those communities to not get what they need. 
and, and I hear what you're saying there, but I think that at root, like class is not separate from racism, right? Both of them are systems of oppression designed by people in positions of power to boost themselves and bring other people down. And even if that's not how they're designed today, which I would contend they still are, but even if that's not how they're meant to be today, that's how they function. And you're right that like race and socioeconomic status are inextricably linked. But then to say like, therefore let's only solve one of those things and then we'll focus on the other, I think is taking a very narrow view of the issue overall. Because it's not a question of just solving poverty because you can't solve poverty without addressing racism. And I would contend vice versa. You know, and there's like so many levels of nuance and overlap to all of that, that like it's very tempting, especially like from a, from a coming from a political institution that we do that is so bureaucratic and weird and bad at funding and like just generally very ineffective. It's very tempting to look at all of these big complex issues and say, let's just focus on one, we can manage one and then we'll manage the rest. But that's not how change is enacted certainly not any meaningful level of systemic change because the issues do not exist separately from each other. We have to address all of them. And that's like hard and seems very counterproductive, but at root, that's the only way that the issues will get addressed is if we tackle all of them head on instead of trying to divide and separate them in ways that are ultimately, I would contend meaningless. You know, one I, way, I disagree with, with yeah. that a little bit. Like <laughs> that, that, like theory of like divide and conquer actually works really well. Like if we look at like America as an institutionalized racist society, like we can't just like change all of that at once. Like we have to take steps. Yeah. So if we solve poverty, like when you look at like um when you were talking about like police brutality, like you look at only in terms of race. Like that is all the statistics you were citing is that but there's so much more that goes into it like um like we were talking about is that like fatherlessness um economic situation is that like there's so much more that determines like what like whether your likelihood to commit a crime and things than just race and uh, like of course like there's some linkage there but like in a vacuum sort of sense is that like um if you have like this group of people that race um in a vacuum is not going to play a factor on whether or not they yeah. commit a crime and so um but like in an America, it does. And so we need to like tackle, like I think counts like poverty. If we can tackle poverty, like there are some racial issues there and we can tackle those together. But to like look at all of this and tackle, like people get discouraged. Like it looks like a monolith. Whereas if we take it down one stone by at a time, then eventually like we'll be done. Like we can't just like topple this whole monolith. Okay, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't disagree, but like, here's the problem with that specifically. Let's take the example of poverty and then racism. Let's say that we solve poverty. Here's the thing, we'll never solve poverty. Right. This comes to an earlier the point the talent was making. Is that we'll like, never solve racism either. Agreed. Yeah. We, will never, we will never fully solve any of these problems. And that at root to me is why the divide and conquer strategy falls apart. Because it implies that like, let's, let's say that like we tackle poverty and we're like, we're gonna work on poverty until we've fixed that and then we'll worry about racism. And then like we make steps and we're like fixing various things in poverty and we're like, we're taking steps towards improving the socioeconomic status overarchingly of all Americans. Great. That's great. But we'll never finish with poverty. Mm -hmm. And so then we'll never get to truly tackling racism because we have divided so, it. Separate thing, is that you're right in how they're all overlapped and the pro some problems will cause things in poverty and poverty is going to cause some things in racism. Um, I think like with the divide and conquer strategy, you was like, okay, let's look at this. 
uh, kind of, I don't know how to explain in like some other analogy, like maybe a math problem or something like that, but where you find the first problem and then it kind of branches out to that next problem. It's like, oh wait, this so, has to do with racism. So debt, actually, like, getting out of debt is a super great example here. Mm -hmm. And I want to get back to your point, Calvin, is that maybe, maybe we don't divide and conquer, but maybe we divide and improve to a certain point to where mm -hmm. we can then split off again and improve. Like maybe mm -hmm. we, because we can't fully solve poverty. So let's mm -hmm. not focus on fully solving it but let's get it to a better place and then let's work on mm -hmm. something else and get it to a better place and, and, and like kind of spread that out, mm -hmm. but not to work on too many at once. Cause then we're spreading resources very, very thin. And I would like to talk a little bit of two examples. One is with trees and one is with marching band is that like in marching band, no one is ever going to be perfect. No one's ever yeah. going to be perfectly on their dot. Mm -hmm. No one's ever going to have the exact same step size in between things, but we don't focus on getting everything to be perfect. We focus on, well, let's make equal step size first, but then we can work on technique. Then we can work on to getting onto your dot on time. Is that mm. like, it's not that this problem is completely gone. It's that we've shrunk that down yeah. to where um, it's not as big of a problem is that we have bigger problems now. Is that like in marching band, the fundamental thing you do to become great is focus on the biggest problem at a time and you take it down one at a time until eventually like you're correcting tiny little things. And, and so with yeah. my example with like a tree is that like, um, like we said, like fatherlessness, like causes, like it's one of the best predictors of like drug abuse, of crime rates, of all this stuff is that if we can tackle that, like economic, that'll get, that'll actually, it's like getting rid of like, if you're trying to change police brutality in and of itself, it's kind of like chopping it like leaves or a branch on a tree. Like that will fix that problem, but this leaves the rest is that if we can tackle the bottom, that will most of the rest of it will actually disappear. Like if we can tackle poverty from first and we can actually like get rid of a lot of poverty disparity is that the police brutality disparity will shrink too. It won't ever be gone in either of those two, but it will shrink because of it's directly affected by this. Is that if we can chop more towards the root and towards the bottom of the tree, it won't go away completely but it's much more effective and better than trying to chop it like one leaf at a time. Yeah. Because, All right. So yeah. I'm going to have to interject there because we've been doing this for well over two hours. Yeah. Um, and I actually have things I need to go and do. Yeah. And Calvin also Same. does. Um, yeah. So I think we should kind of wrap up there, but right. yeah, I so, wish we could talk for another yeah. two hours because there's definitely content. It's yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Th thanks guys. Um, thanks for watching or listening, depending on what you're on. Um, <laughs> yeah. And but, the last yeah. thing I want to say is like, seriously, no harsh feelings about any of this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the beauty of this is that we kind of come together and we can all kind of leave with maybe cuts or bruises but never really feeling any resentment towards anyone um because i think that's kind of healthy and you know the things we say in here uh none of us are malicious none of us are trying to incite any violence or or any ill ill thoughts we're just kind of trying to talk stuff okay. conversation is important because if we don't have conversation then we don't get other perspectives and then nothing changes ever yeah, yeah. exactly yes. all right so thanks guys like yeah, subscribe whatever you're on um yeah shoot us an email on your thoughts we have not gotten any of those <laughs> so at gmail.com and we will actually feature you on the next show that we do um yeah. we'll talk about your thoughts and our thoughts on your thoughts all right all right so see you later see you guys. Yeah.